Hello, everyone. Junior church, you are dismissed. Four years old through fourth grade to walk. So I have a question for all of you while they're um, going to junior church. What is probably the most famous psalm in all the world? Hi. How are you? Nice to see you. You're Riley? R-Y-L-E-E. Riley. Nice to meet you. That's awesome. Jesus said, let the little kids come to me. I'll do the same. You guys should all come to me like that and spell your name. So I know how to say it and spell it. Okay. So what is the most famous psalm? Psalm what? No, it's not 139. 23rd Psalm. What is the 23rd Psalm? It's going to be on the screen, but most of you probably can quote it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. By the way, we're going to say it in the King James because that's the only way you can actually say the 23rd Psalm. Okay? Um, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm has just really brought a lot of calm and peace to many people. Many people claim it's one of the most beautiful psalms. A preacher in the 19th century, Henry Ward Beecher, said, this is the nightingale of all psalms. It is just this hidden gem that speaks volumes. And as lovely as it is, there is one line in here that seems odd. It seems out of place. Look at verse 5. Look what this says. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This psalm here is giving glory and honor to God, announcing that there's a banquet feast in heaven and in front of you. You get this banquet feast. Are your enemies watching? Well, that's weird. David's singing about a song about how his enemies get to see a celebration that he partakes in. Whether they're observers or participants in the banquet, that's not the point. The real point is that they are jealous of the honor bestowed to him that there are enemies. There are enemies out there. Even in this beloved psalm, it talks about our enemies. There were enemies of David. What about you? Who are your enemies? Some of you may think, well, I don't have enemies. You just don't know them. You don't know that you're enemies. While you may not have an army set up, setting a camp up, ready to bring tanks and bazookas against you, you do have enemies, people who don't like you, people who want to oppose you. That is an enemy. Somebody who wants to stop what you are doing, people who are against you. 
Now, why do we have enemies? Well, because conflicts between people are common. Unfortunately, we have enemies sometimes in our own marriages. When you have this conflict and it starts and it boils over. Sometimes we have enemies within our families or neighbors. Sometimes others make it unavoidable for us to have enemies. David found it like this. He faced many enemies in his life, beginning with the big Philistine Goliath. The Philistines as a whole, other neighboring countries, and then even his own son. These were all some of his enemies. And with that, we're going to look at two songs, two psalms, that David wrote that people would sing. Remember, a a psalm is just poetry meant to be sung. And listen to the content of these songs. Now, when I think of psalms, I think of worship, lifting glory and honor to God. Let's, let's hear what these psalms say. Psalms 58, justice. Do you rulers know the meaning of the word? Do you judge the people fairly? No. You plot injustice in your hearts. You spread violence throughout the land. Who's he singing to? He's not really singing to God right now, is he? You spread violence throughout the land. These wicked people are born sinners. Even from birth, they have lied and gone their own way. They spit venom like deadly snakes. They are like cobras that refuse to listen, ignoring the tunes of the snake charmers, no matter how skillful they play. Here's where we saw the transition. It was you to the people, and then it was they. So he's changed his focus. He's singing up to God. Verse 6. Break off their fangs, O God. Smash the jaws of these lions, O Lord. May they disappear like water into thirsty ground. Make their weapons useless in their hands. May they be like snails that dissolve into slime. That's a just a poetic song, isn't it? Like a stillborn child who will never see the sun. God will sweep them away, both young and old, faster than the pot heats over burning thorns. The godly will rejoice when they see injustice avenged. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then at last everyone will say, there truly is a reward for those who live for God. Surely there is a God who judges justly here on earth. Just puts you in the mood for worship, doesn't it? Isn't that, wait, isn't this scripture? How about this one, Psalm 109? Oh God whom I praise. Don't stand silent and aloof while the wicked slander me and tell lies about me. They surround me with hateful words and fight against me for no reason. I love them, but they try to destroy me with accusations even though I am praying for them. They repay evil for good and hatred for my love. They said, get an evil person to turn against him. Send an accuser to bring him to trial. When his case comes up for judgment, let him be profound, or pronounced guilty. Count his prayers as sins. Let his years be few. Let someone else take his position. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. May creditors seize his entire estate and strangers take all that he earns. Let no one... Be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all his offspring die. 
May his family name be blotted out in the next generation. May the Lord never forget the sins of his fathers. May his mother's sins never be erased from the record. May the Lord always remember these sins. And may his name disappear from human memory. For he refused all kindness to others. He persecuted the poor and the needy, and he hounded the brokenhearted to death. He loved to curse others. Now you... He's talking to God. Now you curse him. He never blessed others. Now don't you bless him. Cursing is as natural to him as clothing or the water he drinks or the rich food he eats. Now may his curses return and cling to him like clothing. May they be tied around him like a belt. May those curses become the Lord's punishment for my accusers who speak evil of me. That's harsh. Imagine singing these songs. God, make my enemies children's orphans. Make my enemy, his wife, a widow. May his children become beggars and have all the creditors take everything he has. David is actually calling in song to God for vengeance. To wreak vengeance on his own enemies. And he's even telling God how to bring vengeance on them. In this song, it really sounds like he's expecting God to answer the way he's saying it. How do we handle this? Especially when we know what Jesus says in Matthew 5.44. But I say, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Was David loving his enemies there? The man after God's own heart, is he showing love and devoted prayer to these enemies? So I read these and I I put them aside. I'm like, man, that's a tough topic. I don't really want to go over them. But I kept hearing it. So I went back. How do we respond to psalms or scriptures like these? When we read the Bible and when we read a difficult passage like these, here's some of the the first question we should bring up. How do we handle these divinely inspired verses? Because we need to come back to that. Yes, this was a song about vengeance, but David wrote these under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were put into the canon, into Scripture, guided by God's hand, so therefore they're here for a reason. How do we handle them? How do we handle Scripture that just seems harsh, mean, negative? So we have to back up from the Psalms and look a little further into the past. Under the law, the Old Testament, there were special provisions for avenging wrongs that were suffered to you. If you want to look into them, just look under uh, Numbers chapter 35 and Deuteronomy 19. When a person... if If you cause the death of someone else, the law provided an avenger or avenger of blood. It really means that the near kinsman, this person could avenge the death of their family member by having you killed. But there were six cities of refuge that were located among all the territories as directed by Moses um, while they were in the entrance of Canaan. 
The specific cities are in Joshua 20, if in case you want to know. Now, the (laughs) institution of cities, I just combined those two words. Institution of cities of refuge is very different than the current thinking of sanctuary cities. That's what these were. They were sanctuary cities, but they're not the same as we hear sanctuary cities today. These cities of refuge, these sanctuary cities, were merely protecting that refugee until the case came to court. That's what the city of refuge, the sanctuary cities were for, was that a person could go and be safe until the trial was held and then the sentence was pronounced. It wasn't so that guilty people could go live free. It was where they could be safe until the court had their time with them and pronounced them. If that person was declared guilty of murder, that person had to leave the sanctuary city and go to the place of execution. Cities of refuge were never intended to save a criminal from punishment that he deserved. They were established for securing a just sentence so that unjust penalties didn't happen without merit. That's a sanctuary city. They wanted to make sure that proper justice happened. And let's just say, if if somebody kicks you, don't you want to kick them a little harder? Now imagine that in with a murder. And so instead of flying off the handle, God says, no, send them to this city. Now you go and get the proper plans to carry out this justice. In the Bible, the person who committed intentional murder was never spared It was not merely the Avengers' rights, the near kinsmen, to kill the murderer. It was their responsibility to carry it out biblically and legally. Dustin gets up and then he goes and uh, kills one of my family members. I don't just get the right to go kill him. That's not what this is saying. It would say that you'd have to take him to court. And while the court is happening, he's in a safe city. And then when he was pronounced guilty, then I get to watch him be executed. That's how this Old Testament style was handled. However, these passages, while that's in the law, well, look what also is in the law. Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't seek vengeance or revenge. Why shouldn't we take vengeance or revenge? Well, Deuteronomy 32 says, God says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. In due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will arrive and their destiny will overtake them. So you and I are not to seek revenge or vengeance. That's God's job. According to this verses, you and I are not just reflexively to respond with revenge. It has to go to the courts. And then if found guilty... Then and only then could you enact that justice that is deserved. We are not to just take revenge. And yet, what did we just read in Psalms? David wants revenge. What is he singing about? Disaster and destruction on his enemies. Now notice, he's not doing it. He's not just going to go cause it to happen. He's asking God to fulfill this promise. While we're not under those Old Testament laws, we do have enemies. I've met some of my enemies. I've read some of their posts and comments about me. 
I know there's more out there. What do we do about that? What do we do about the enemies? Romans 12 says this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Paul, we're not under the old law, right? Well, Paul quotes the Old Testament and says we are still to live underneath this law, this uh, style of living. He uses the same scriptures from Deuteronomy, which shows that while we're not under the law, we should still strive to fulfill and live accordingly to it. Not to achieve righteousness, because God has already done that, but in accordance and obedience because of our love to Him. In Hebrews 10.30, For we know the one who said, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. He also says, The Lord will judge His own people. All vengeance belongs to God. In no case is it our place to exercise vengeance, revenge on our enemies. God knows when and how to do it. It is not my place. It is not your place to wreak vengeance upon your enemies. So what do we do? I mean, David's singing this. He's pouring his heart out on it. He wants an answer to this injustice. Jesus tells us what to do in Matthew 5. You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When you first read this, the first thing that came to my mind when I first read this many years ago, well, Jesus changed the Bible. I thought the Bible was the same. I thought it was congruent. It never changed. That God was always the same. I want us to really hear this. Jesus didn't change what the Old Testament says. He defines it according to the real author of it. That's what the difference is. The Old Testament of love your neighbor and hate your enemies, that's not what it truly meant. What Jesus is saying is he's redefining it in a godly perspective, not an earthly one. Who here agrees that Jesus' words are not only right, but we should obey them? Great, good. Okay, so we all do that. We know we should obey God's word. No one here today really needs persuading that what God commands us, we should do. And yet, how many of you are so eager to say, oh yeah, I love my enemies. I'm going to have them over for pot roast. We, we don't love our enemies. We should, but we... Just don't. And, and here's why. You can't just love your enemies by forcing an unwilling heart and an unwilling mind to love because God said so. How many times did your mom say, because I said so, and it still wasn't enough for you? Especially when so many parts of our minds, our emotions are against those enemies and God says, love them. Why? If we look at the words of Christ as just a command, we will never be successful. If we look at the command to love our enemies as a task to accomplish, a command to fulfill, we will always fail. I want to read that again. If we look at the command to love our enemy as just a command to fulfill, we will always 
fail. What's the intent of that? To just succeed. It's just an, a task. We can claim and pretend to love everyone, including our enemies. We can say we love everyone, but eventually fake love will always disintegrate. Now hear me on this. God does not require you to do something that you cannot do. And I just said we can't just love our enemies. Did Jesus love the scribes? He also called them what? A brood of vipers. Isn't that kind of a contrary? Love them, but speak mean to them. No, that's not what he's saying. Did Jesus love the scribes, even though they hated him, they were his enemies? Did he love them enough to die for them? Well, yes, absolutely. Did Jesus have the same relationship with the scribes that he did with Peter, John, Simon, Judas? There was a difference in the relationship. What was it? Some were for him. And some were against him. Jesus loved them, but that does not mean he had a full relationship with the scribes, with those who were his enemies. What Jesus teaches us about loving our enemies is part of a larger set of principles. And those principles are at the heart of God. This whole year, we're trying to pursue a heart after God, just like David. We want to make sure that we here at St. Joe are a people of a heart after God. These principles, when we realize them, it's a complete change in our disposition. It's a complete change of our mental framework. And the only way that this can possible, the only way I can love my enemies is through regeneration, through being born again. It's talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old passes away. Behold, new things have come. It says, in Christ. And what that means falls under two things. First, salvation of the soul. When you're in Christ, you're being saved. It means you are saved. Secondly, it means transformation. When you are in Christ, you are being changed into the likeness of of Christ. Loving your enemies isn't something you do, but something we become. Loving your enemies is something we become. When we become like Christ, we become like the love of God, which goes out even to our enemies. It's the result of a comprehensive top-to-bottom re re, um, recreation of the entire person. The transformation requires the renewal of the mind. When, when I was coming to that, the first scripture came to mind was Romans 12.2. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but by, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can't renew our minds. There are lots of tricks and self-helps to make you a better learner, to help your memory, but that's not transforming. That's just using your tools there, right? The only way to transform your mind is to give that completely to God and let Him change it. The word renew means to make new again. Um, transform is the Greek word metamorpho. What does metamorpho sound like? Metamorphosis, and, and we know what that 
Same word describes, that same word, metamorpho, is the same word that describes Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorpho, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Where does the transformation come from? From the Lord. The metamorphosis produces an entirely different way of thinking and living. Paul connects that to the new life in Jesus in Romans 6, 4. For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. We get a new, these are basics of Christianity, of the gospel. You die to sin, you die to your old self, you are raised to a new life, you are given this new transformation, and yet do we always put this in perspective when it comes to our enemies? Baptism is not just a ticket to heaven, it's an absolute surrender. Surrender to that metamorphosis, to change that God wants to bring to us. Not that we can do this ourselves, but God does it in and through and for us. Nowhere in Scripture is the Christian expected to submit to a change as revolutionary as when it comes to regards to our enemies. And transformation means there is something to give up. Really think about that. Transformation, if you want to be metamorphosed, You have to give up something. The caterpillar has to give up its many legs. It cannot fly unless it gives up the freedom of the cocoon. What about Abraham? Abraham had to give up Isaac. He had to go through that metamorphosis of giving, surrendering. What do you and I have to give up? To love our enemy. First thing that came to mind for me was pride. It's my want. It's my desire. What I think I want. The desire to even things up. The notion that the enemy has to be made to understand the severity of the wrong that they did. God just make them understand. The belief that they must pay for their offenses and the desire to see it done. Must we give up? Maybe justification. These are all rationalizations for hanging on to the sin. As if it was still something precious. This, there's wrongdoing. This thing that happened to me. And it says, love your enemies. It doesn't amount to anything until the words on paper become living. So, I, you know, I grew up um, without a dad for a long time. I, my biological left. Um, and here's what happened to me. I was told I had an enemy. By the way his actions were towards me, the lack of love, the lack of involvement, he was my enemy. I hated him. I didn't want anything good to happen to him. And a lot of my family felt the same way. They didn't want anything nice to happen to him. He was the enemy of our family. And I got to finally meet him. I was was four when he left. 
And I got to meet him 20-some years later, and I was not a nice guy at first. I shook his hand, but then I said, I'm so glad you left my life. I lived a better life since you weren't in it. Which is harsh, but my mom made sure we were going to church. My uncle stepped in and became like a father figure and made God a central part, which he would not, that guy would not have done. And then I got to do something after I told him what I thought. I forgive you. That was love. I don't love him, but I have a love for him. It's a whole different relationship than I have with my kids, my wife, my mom, and my my dad. It's a different kind of love, but I offered something that he needed and I needed to give him based on the scriptures, love your enemy. And do you know what happened to me when I did that? This thing fell off of my shoulders. This anger, this hatred, it, it, it was gone. Because I took my feelings, set them down, and I grabbed God's word and said, I will love him. I don't want to. It doesn't make sense to me, but your word says it so here. And I gave him something that only God could do. It's never going to change just because we say it or read it until we let it transform, metamorpho within us and how we think and how we feel until it becomes our blood, our heart, our mind, and soul. As soon as we love God with all those things, it will metamorphose in us so that we can even love our enemies. The words have to become real. The actions of love don't mean we love our enemies until that love is reciprocated. It doesn't mean that I just be nice and gentle to them. It means that I actually give them that love. Because honestly, I'm so God, so glad that God didn't say, you know what, I'm done with you. You have betrayed me so many times here, 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 and here. I'm done. I'm ready for vengeance on you. Instead, he gave me love when I didn't deserve it. And when we do that, that love will make us more Christ-like. It'll make us on that same path that David was on, a man after God's own heart. Look look at one more psalm of David, and this one's not in the psalms, but it is a psalm of David. Um, 2 Samuel, oh, my sermon didn't say right. (laughs) I don't have the rest of my sermon. So, then David composed a funeral song for Saul. Now, Who is Saul? That's his enemy. Saul had tried to kill him multiple times. Saul had tried to murder him, had sent rage to go kill him. And David composed a funeral song for Saul. Now, I would think it'd be very similar to Psalm 59. There's another one that, hey, it's gone. Bring devastation. Bring his children to be fatherless. But look what he says. And he commanded that it be uh, taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of Bo and is recorded in the book of Joshua, or Jashar. Your pride and joy, this is the beginning of the song, your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. 
Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Don't denounce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of that place. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh in triumph. Oh, mountains of Geboah, let there be no... Next slide. Do or rain upon you or fruitful fields producing offerings of grains for the shields of the mighty heroes. Notice what he's calling Saul, a mighty hero. That's his enemy. The heroes was defiled and the shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The bow of Jonathan was powerful and the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Oh, women of Israel, weep for Saul. For he deserved you in luxurious, or he dressed you in luxurious scarlet and garments decorated with gold. How the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Most of the song was about Saul, his enemy. And then he goes, Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of a woman. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen, stripped of their weapons. They lie dead. They, oh, thank you. Oh, my. Small print. I forgot to make it bigger, didn't I? So, what did David do here in that psalm? He poured love on his enemy. He made sure that all of Israel knew this song. Make sure that all the people of Israel know that Saul was one of the heroes of God. Yes, he messed up. Yes, he was my enemy. Yes, he unjustly tried to murder me. But you will remember the hero of him. Remember the good deeds. That's love of David being poured out on his enemy. Now, what's the difference between this psalm and those other psalms we read? I want you to notice, who did David sing this song for? It was for God and all the people in, here in Second Samuel. But those other two, the ones where he's crying out, where he's pouring out his heart, where he said, let this negative things happen, who was he singing to? God alone. For God alone. David poured out his anger to God. David was venting, and God was listening. And here's what I took from that. You can pour out your anger, the frustration, the injustices that you feel because of your enemy. You pour it out to the guy who says, I will hold the vengeance. I can take that away from you. I will hold it and execute it in proper time. You pour it out to him and you let go. That's what I really think those other two psalms are. It's David pouring out his heart, pouring out the vengeance that he truly wants, and he lays it down at the altar of God, and then he backs up and he says, You, God, are the master. You are the one who will inject, in, um, invoke justice. And then in the rest of the songs we see, we see him thanking God for the mercy that he doesn't enact justice on him. 
And here in Psalm in Second Samuel, I think we see that same mercy from David. You want to know how to be a, a man or woman after God's own heart? Love your enemy. And the only way you can do that is if you pour out that anger that you have for God. Pour it out to Him. Not for God. The anger you have for your enemies. And pour it out unto God. Place yourself under God's protection. David here is, again, a model. He didn't retaliate against Saul. He didn't retaliate against these others. He went to God. Look what Psalm 37. Look what it says. The wicked wait in ambush for the godly. Who's waiting? The wicked. Okay? Looking for an excuse to kill them. But the Lord, the Lord will not let the wicked succeed or let the godly be condemned when they are put on trial. The wicked watches for an, an opportunity to attack. The righteous step back and let God handle it. God is not putting us at the mercy of our enemies. God is really saying, trust me to handle your enemies. There are enemies all around us right now. The culture is at war with the morality of God. Governments are at war against rightful living. Communities are at war because of uh, differences of opinions. There are enemies even within this building right now. And all of those enemies stem from pursuing the wrong heart. Pursuing a heart after God means even loving them, but backing up and letting God handle them. There's a few of us, I don't want to say names, but Olin's right over there, um, and me. When something happens to us, we just want to go get even or get worse on them. But we have to step back and realize that God loves that person. As we just heard in the communion meditation, that person is God's treasured. And if he's willing to die for them, should I say, Forget my feelings for a moment, God. I'm going to lay them down, but you handle them your way. And I will get out of that way. You may be able to win enemies to Christ then. Or not. But they won't bring you away from Christ. As long as you are pursuing the heart of God. We're going to come now to a time where usually we have an invitation, but right now I really want to change it up because there are people dealing with enemies in this room, whether the enemy's in this room or not. I mean, you, you are dealing with enemies. And we need to take them to God. Not to just seek for vengeance like we read in, in David, but also to love on them like we also read from David. And we need to go first and foremost, God, help me, help us love them. Not the same relationship that we'd have with a close family or friend, but have a love for them that I no longer want harm. I want you to handle them. I hand them over to you. 
That's a very hard prayer. But if you're willing to do that, will you make that known today? If you want to come up and even say that I am dealing with an enemy and we'll pray with you. If you want to meet in the back room so we can go to God together and we can pray with you and and see how God can transform metamorphosis, that mind and that heart so that we can become more and more like Christ. Will you do that? Let's stand and let's pray right now. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that even though we, we mess up, even though that we become your enemies so many times, God, that you give us that grace, that you bestow upon us so much mercy. Help us to love our enemies, God. Help us to see them as a treasure that you proclaim is worth dying for. God, I do ask for forgiveness in how we treat those and how we we try to thwart them and how we try to malign against them. And God, forgive me. Help us all to seek forgiveness of that and to leave them in your hands. God, I do trust you. And help us at a church to live according to that trust and love even more. May this song be one not of just words that we sing on a, on a screen, but ones that proclaim out of our hearts. God, I ask that you do some even more metamorphosis in our hearts and our minds, not just today, but continually to make us more and more a people after your own heart. And in your name we all pray. Amen. Amen.